Romans chapter 4, verses 16 through 22 is our text for this morning. This is the 22nd sermon in a study through the New Testament book of Romans. Please remember that Romans was written by a missionary. Romans, in part, is a missionary support letter. Paul was raising money in order to go to Spain. The heart of God is missions. And therefore, you should either prayerfully consider yourself becoming a missionary, or you should work tenaciously to send missionaries. Today's message is 39 handwritten pages, and the title of the sermon today is Having My Baby. The full title is Having My Baby, What a Lovely Way of Saying How Much You Love Me, but the shortened version of that is simply Having My Baby. Remember today as I preach and remember for the rest of your life that God loves you. Turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 4 and listen as I read Romans 4 verses 16 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why... His faith was counted to him as righteousness. Our Father in heaven, as we consider these seven verses today, I pray that you would give us not only an understanding of what they mean, but I pray, dear Lord, that you would use them to produce faith in our hearts. I, Lord, pray that you would grant faith to the one who does not currently possess it, for we know that faith comes by hearing the word and Lord, we who do know you, Lord, we pray that our faith would grow and be strengthened by studying and believing your word. And so, Lord, strengthen our faith. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I was able to, I was unable to come up with a tidy outline. So the message today is more or less just going to be a running commentary on these seven verses. Uh, I think that that is very fitting for what I am about to tell you. And that is before I get into the text today, I want to say a word about my preaching style which will perhaps hopefully help you get more out of these sermons from Romans. Now, this excursus that I'm about to give you is pretty lengthy. It's about seven handwritten pages. But I think I need to say what I am about to say because we are, Lord willing, going to be in the book of Romans for a long time. I should have said this way back in Romans chapter 1, but better late than never. You need to know how to listen to me as I attempt to preach the book of Romans. 
Um, the reason that this is true is because this is not an easy book to understand. It's weighty, it is profound, it is complex. It requires a lot of effort when it comes to study, delivery, and even listening, and most especially in applying. Every preacher has a different style. Some preachers are similar, but everybody's a little bit different. Concerning my specific style with this book, the book of Romans, I have one goal, and that is to explain what the text of Scripture means, every word of it. Uh, at the start of every sermon, what I will do is I will announce up front what passage we're going to be studying that day, and then I will read all of it. And then I will start at the beginning of that passage, and I will work my way through the text phrase by phrase. Most times I will do it in the order in which it appears in the Bible. Usually I will have some kind of a loose, general, broad stroke outline. Sometimes, rarely, but sometimes like today, I won't be able to come up with an outline. It'll just be a running commentary, but it actually makes no difference whether there is an outline or not. My goal is to explain to you what each phrase in the text means. If possible, I would like to add to that some sort of communication to you concerning the flow or the logical reason why what is being said is being said. And by that I mean not only are we going to consider what the biblical text says, but also to consider where the mind of the author, the Apostle Paul, was in constructing logically his overarching argument, uh, the logic of not only what he is saying, but why he is saying it. And then uh, what I will do, after I have read some commentaries, I will consult some smart guys uh, who will help give me an understanding of the passage. I'll do whatever it takes to, to communicate that to you. I will use illustrations, either illustrations from my own life or illustrations from history or illustrations from the Bible or hypothetical situation illustrations. I will read quotes. I will cite cross-references. I will um, uh, rephrase the words. I will employ song lyrics or poorly crafted jokes. I will do whatever I can do in order to help you understand the text. And then when I feel that I have explained the text of the passage reasonably well, what I will do at the conclusion of the message, I will usually give you some gospel-centered practical applications. There are some preachers who interweave their applications throughout the, uh, the sermon. That's a, that is one way to do it. There are different styles, as I said. Mine just happens to be to dump them onto the end. Now, why am I telling you all of this? I am telling you this so that you will know how to listen to my sermons. Now, here's the key. When I preach, you are going to be well served to have an open Bible on your lap, Scripture right in front of you, knowing that you should be looking at it all the time, so that you can anticipate, expect, or I would even say demand that every phrase will be explained. Uh, usually, I'm going to explain them in the order in which they appear in the text. Uh, there are some phrases and some words which are going to receive more treatment than others, but every item in the text is something that I'm going to attempt to explain. Like, so for example, today, we're going to spend more time in verses 16 and 17 than we are in 18 through 22, but we are going to be looking at all of it. 
Sometimes, rarely, but sometimes I will skip around in the text thematically. But even when I skip around, I will always circle back to explain what I have not yet explained. And I will do the best that I can to announce where I am in our process of going through the text. There are some preachers who will stand in front of the congregation, they will read their text, and then they will preach the entire sermon masterfully, beautifully, in a Christ-honoring way, and they will never refer back to where they are. They will just assume that you are able to follow and that you do remember the reading of the, 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 the passage, and they'll be able to weave it all together. I'm not a good enough preacher to do that. That is not my particular style. I'm not being critical of those that are doing it. I wish that I could do it. I can't and I don't. And so that is why you will often hear me when I preach use phrases like notice what it says in verse 16 or as we now move into verse 17 or please take a look at the final phrase of verse 18 or look at that word which is repeated in verse 19, etc. Now this I say... Once again, so that you will know what to expect. And the only way for you to do that is to have an open Bible in front of you and to follow along. So what you could do is you could actually use your Bible when I'm preaching kind of like as a scorecard just to check off and make sure that I have addressed everything that is in the passage. Please don't write in the Pew Bible, but but sort of even mentally to have a scorecard there to follow along and make sure that I have touched on everything. And 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 if you are just listening without an open Bible, and you're sort of like trying to just catch what you can without a Bible in front of you, I think that you're going to find my sermons to be confusing and or boring. Uh, there are some preachers who are very captivating, they are entertaining, and they are easy to follow. I am none of those things. I simply feel compelled to explain to you what the text says. And the reason why I feel compelled to do that is because the only actual power in what I'm saying comes from the life-giving Word of God itself. It is not my opinion or, or how I feel or the things which, which sort of have been impressed upon my mind. It's, it's the Word, and that's it. That's really all I have to say to you. And therefore, the better, that is, the more accurately we understand the Word itself, the better off we will be. I have nothing to say to you which is of any value whatsoever other than what is in the Bible. And your job is to listen, to follow along, to put an effort through the power of the Holy Spirit mentally into tracking with my argument and mentally engaging with the text to see if what I am saying is faithful and accurate. And insofar as what I am saying is true, well, then you, as a Christian, are bound to listen, uh, to be attentive, to believe, uh, to rejoice, to repent, and to apply. Now, please know that, that as I am asking you to listen to what I am saying about the text, please know this, there are times when I get it wrong. Uh, you are going to listen to me preach sometimes and you are not going to agree with all of my arguments or my logic or my conclusion. In fact, sometimes you might be sitting there and you'll just open your Bible and, and you'll be sort of listening to what I have to say, but you'll be reading the text and what you will be able to come up with in your own mind will be better than what I am coming up with from the pulpit. 
It is my job to faithfully attempt in the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim God's Word. It is your job to engage your eyes, your eyes and your ears and your mind as an active listener. Now, this is not to say that my method of preaching is the best approach, but it is to say it happens to be my particular style. And if you are a member of this church, guess what? We are stuck with one another, and we are going to be stuck with one another, all things being equal, for a really long time, because this is a really long book. I should have said all of this when I started Romans chapter 1. I didn't, forgive me, but now you know. Today, our text is going to be verses 16 through 22 of chapter 4. Allow me, please, to put a little context to the text. Romans chapter 1, everybody's a sinner. Gentiles. Romans chapter 2, Jews are sinners. Romans chapter 3, Jews and Gentiles are sinners. But at the end of chapter 3, there's a glimmer of hope, and that is that there is something called salvation, and this salvation is not based upon works. Rather, it is based upon faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, whom God put forth to be a propitiation by His blood. In other words, at the end of chapter 3, it is saying that Jesus died in place of sinners to atone for their sins and thus appeasing the wrath of God. And the conclusion that Paul makes, based upon that clear gospel, is that one is justified or made right in the sight of God apart from the works of the law. Now as he moves from chapter 3 into chapter 4, and we are in chapter 4 right now, the subject does not change. He makes the statement in chapter 3, and then he illustrates the truth in chapter 4 through the life of Abraham. What do we have in chapter 4? Well, we are reminded of the fact that God made promises to Abraham, and Abraham simply believed God. And as a result, Abraham was declared righteous by God. Not by his works, not by his circumcision, not by the law-keeping, but simply by believing. As it says in Genesis 15, verse 6, And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted or credited it to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham had, he possessed, a perfect righteousness in the record book of heaven, and he got it, not by doing good, but it was given to him as a free gift by God. Why? Simply because Abraham believed God's promises. That is where we are up to this point in chapter 4, which brings us to verse 16. So here's what I need you to do now. Look, L-O-O-K, look at your Bible in verse 16 and follow along. Here we go. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Paul has been driving home the fact that salvation is by faith, apart from rituals, apart from works, apart from the law, But what we have here is a deeper look into the gospel. We have not only the fact that salvation is by faith, 
But now he tells us why, W-H-Y, why, why it is by faith. And the why is this. It is so that it might rest upon grace. What was God's purpose in coming up with a salvation plan that functions via faith and faith alone? Why did God do it that way? Well, verse 16 gives us two reasons. The first reason is so that it, and the it there is our salvation, our standing before God, so that it will rest upon or lean upon or be dependent upon grace. In other words, the free gift. For if salvation rests on the free gift, then the only one who can receive glory is the giver of that gift. And since God's purpose is his own glory, and he desires to maximize his glory, he knows that it will be maximized when he does all of the work and therefore takes all of the credit, and he is deserving of all of the credit. And so when we start to attempt to earn God's favor by rituals or by our own works or by the keeping of the law, what we are doing is we are robbing God of his glory. And he is not indifferent about this. Uh, He is angered because what you are doing is you are interfering with or you are messing up his desire to be glorified. You know that project that you like to work on in your house? And you like to work on this project by yourself. And the reason why you like to work on this project by yourself is because you feel as though you are the only one who can do it correctly. If you want something done right, do it yourself. And a friend comes over to visit. And while they're there, uh, perhaps they show up unexpectedly and they volunteer to help you. And they jump in and they get their hands on your project. And, and as they are working on it, you, you, you're saying, okay, I have to be polite. I can't tell them to stop, but you know fully well that everything that they are doing, you are going to have to redo when they leave. And everything in you wants to say, stop, please. You're, you're, I know you want to help. I know that you mean well, but you are not helping. You're actually making things worse. Well, when it comes to salvation, When we get our hands into the dough, we are making things worse. We are not contributing. God does not appreciate it. He does not want our help with this. He does all of the work and he wants all of the credit. It is by faith so that it might rest upon grace. That is God's purpose. Salvation is by faith so that it can rest 100% upon grace. John Stott was a theologian who lived in Great Britain. He lived from 1921 until 2011. He has a very profound quote concerning the fact that it is all of grace. Listen to this. The fixed point is that God is gracious and that salvation originates in his sheer grace alone. But in order that this may be so, Our human response can only be faith. For grace gives and faith takes. Let me say that again. Grace gives and faith takes. Faith's exclusive function is to humbly receive what grace offers. End quote. And so profound and correct. In other words, God says, I don't want you to do anything. I have already done everything. 
in Christ, in the gospel. Therefore, I do not want your help. Your help is unwelcome. The only thing that is on us to do is to believe. That's the first reason, so that it might rest upon grace. The second reason why it is of faith is because of what is stated in the end of verse 16. And so at this point, I would want you to look at your Bible at the second half of verse 16 and notice the second reason. The second reason. And be guaranteed to all his offspring. Well, who are his offspring? Well, not only to the inherent of the law that is a Jewish Christian, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, that is a Gentile Christian, who is the father of us all, that is both Jews and Gentiles who are Christians. This free gift of salvation is not only for the Jewish Christian, but it includes Gentile Christians as well. Why? Well, because we, both Jews and Gentiles, have the same spiritual father, and that is Abraham. Uh, please understand how profound this would have been to those to whom it was originally written. Divisions between Jews and Gentiles in the ancient Near East were intense, and it seemed like even in the church at Rome, there were struggles between Jews and Gentiles. By making the entry into the kingdom by faith and faith alone as the only criteria for salvation, it levels out the playing field by saying, it does not matter who you are. You being a physical, biological descendant of Abraham who was raised with the law and who has been circumcised is of no value whatsoever. Also, it doesn't matter if you are a pagan Gentile. If you want to be in this family, there is only one way to get into this family, and it is by faith. Why is that true? It is because our father, Abraham, started this family by faith, and not by works, not by law-keeping, and not by circumcision. As a pagan, Chaldean, idol worshiper, Abraham is confronted by God, and he is saved by faith, and he starts the family by faith. And now, in order to get into the family, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. Law-keeping, ceremonies, none of that means anything. Abraham is a father, the father of the faithful, the faithful father, not the father of works. It is by faith so that it can rest on grace. It is by faith so that we can all be in the same family with the same dad, whether we are Jews or Gentiles. This, however, is not something which Paul invented. He's going to explain why this is true in verse 17, which is your cue to look at your Bible in verse 17 and see where Paul is getting this. And notice what it says at the beginning of verse 17. As it is written, in other words, I am getting this from the Bible and getting this from the Old Testament. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. This is a quote which comes from Genesis chapter 17, verse 5. It is a quote that the initial readers of the book of Romans would have been familiar with. 
If you are not familiar with it, I invite you please to keep your finger in Romans chapter 4 and turn back to Genesis chapter 17 and see where this quote comes from in context and what it means. Listen to Genesis chapter 17 verses 1 through 6. When Abram, stop right there, Abram, it means exalted father or father of many. Uh, which is really ironic, seeing as how he didn't have any kids, and then he eventually had one kid, but the one kid he had wasn't through his 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 wife; it was through his wife's handmaiden. But 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 meanwhile, he's got this name Abram. When Abram was ninety nine years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, "I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and and may multiply you greatly." Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. This is ridiculous. He is 99 years old, and God says you're going to be the father of a multitude of nations, and he's going to give him a name which is going to indicate that. Here's where the quote comes from, from Romans chapter 4, verse 17. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. So it was ridiculous. Now it's hyper ridiculous. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. No, you haven't. I don't have any kids. I, I, I'm nearly a hundred years old. There's no nation in me right now. God says, oh, yes, yes, actually there is. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. It's in this immediate context that we get these words that Paul cites, which says he's going to be the father of many nations. Now, if you just read the Genesis account, you might come to the conclusion that the nations to whom he is referring are the biological nations which came from his own body. And indeed, that did happen. But in reality, what God is thinking about and what Paul knows that God is thinking about is not the biological descendants of Abraham, but Romans chapter 4 tells us that this is referring to his spiritual offspring. Remember back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when God initially calls Abraham, he says to him, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, how in the world did that happen? It came through the offspring of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, who is Christ, who has blessed all the nations of the earth through his gospel work, through his death and resurrection. Abraham is the father of many nations in that all people from all nations are his descendants if they put their trust in Christ. And the point is this, it does not happen as a result of works. In fact, it was accomplished 100% by Abraham's faith, not his works. He did not become the father of many nations, nor were all the families of the earth blessed by his works, his obedience, his fertility, his, 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 his virility, his, 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 his rites, his rituals. It is referring 100% to his spiritual offspring, and it was accomplished by faith. 
The second half of verse 17 is tricky, and this is your cue to look down on the open Bible, which is on your lap at this time, and to look at the second half of verse 17 to follow the flow of how the first half of verse 17 flows into verse 17. I was going to warn you ahead of time, it's a little bit convoluted, but if we stick together, I think we can get through this. It says, you know, he has said, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of God, Hang on to that phrase, in whom he, Abraham, believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. If you are paying attention, you must conclude this is a little bit convoluted. It is a very difficult sentence, if it is even a sentence, to take apart. But if you are to capture the flow of what Paul is saying in verse 17, you will discover how Abraham's mind worked. And if you can grasp that, it will help to increase your faith. Now, please notice, I'm going to repeat this. I'm going to, to, to accentuate this. I'm going to belabor this because this is so important. Verse 17 does not tell us what he believed. It tells us what Abraham thought about God. And that's the key. Because what one thinks about God is going to determine how they respond when God speaks. When one thinks about God uh, 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 the way Abraham did, it actually doesn't matter what God says. It doesn't matter what God says if you are thinking about God himself properly. And what is it that he thought about God? Well, the first thing to note is that whatever he thought, he thought it in God's presence. Don't skip over that. That is profound. That is, that is important. Abraham not only knew who God was, he only, he not only knew what God said, but more importantly, here we go, he actually knew God himself. That's why he was able to believe. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram. Abram knew the Lord. Genesis 12, 7. The Lord appeared to Abram. Abram knew the Lord. Genesis 13, 14, the Lord said to Abram, Abram knew the Lord himself. Genesis 15, 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Abram knew the Lord himself. Genesis 17, 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. Abram knew the Lord himself. I know that I'm being redundant. I know that I'm belaboring this. I know that you got the point already. But not only do I want you to get the point, I want you to get the point. He knew the Lord. Abraham was not evaluating his next move based upon what he knew about God. He was evaluating his next move based upon the fact that he actually knew God himself. And based upon that interpersonal relationship in the presence of God, he concluded two things about God 
the God that he knew. And what were the two things that he concluded about God? First of all, he concluded verse 17. You can see it with your own eyes in your own Bible. He is a God who is able to raise the dead. What is the second thing that he is able to conclude about God? And that is, this God can call into existence things which do not exist. This faith in the God who raises the dead is probably not referring to the fact that later, much later in life, Abraham would walk up Mount Moriah with Isaac, God having told Abraham to sacrifice your son, and Abraham was willing to do it, and he was willing to do it based upon the fact that he believed that God would raise Isaac. Uh, th- that That is true. We know that from Hebrews eleven nineteen. He considered that God was able even to raise him, that is Isaac, from the dead. That is a true statement. That is not what it's referring to here. Also, I don't think, and I'm not denying the resurrection, I don't think that what is in view here is the resurrection of Christ. It is true that Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and he was glad. But I don't think in the context here it is referring to Abraham knowing about the fact that there would be a Messiah who would die and who would be raised to life. Those are true things. In fact, next week we are going to be looking, Lord willing, at verse 25 where it says of Jesus Christ is the one who was delivered up for our offenses and who was raised for our justification, chapter 4, verse 25. And that is the way that we are saved. I'm not denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I just don't think that that that's what it's talking about here. When it's talking about being dead here, what it is referring to is the deadness of Abraham's body to produce a child. And closely related to that is the deadness of Sarah's womb, a woman who is now 90 who has always had a dead womb. That's what it's referring to in the context, and we're going to deal with that more in verse 19. But you don't have to look at verse 19 right now. You need to be looking at verse 17 because that's where we are. And what is happening in verse 17 is you have Abraham believing in a God who is able to raise the dead and a God who can make something out of nothing. And the God who makes something out of nothing is not a reference to Abraham believing in the doctrine of creation, ex nihilo, that is out of nothing. Although I do believe that Abraham believed in creator God, but that's not what it's referring to here in the context. In the context here, Paul's point is that Abraham was called to believe that there would be a son that would be born to Sarah and himself when in fact there was no son. And that there would be a nation when in fact there was no nation, and that this nation would be so innumerable that no man could count the number and that there would be nations plural. I have absolutely no evidence of this at all. It's not there at all. God says, you got this dead body and you got this woman who's also got a dead body, and guess what? You're going to have a son from that son, There's going to be nations of people. And Abraham listens to God and he says, that makes sense to me. Where did that come from? That is what he's referring to. 
he believed in the God who was able to raise the dead and God who could call things into existence which do not exist. And since he is able to do that, if he says there's going to be a baby, there's going to be a baby. And if he says there's going to be a nation, there's going to be a nation. That's all I need to know. And when he believed that, not by his works, but by his faith, God credited a perfect righteousness to him. In other words, he was saved. The point is, he didn't have to work for it. He couldn't have worked for it. Child isn't even born yet. But Abraham believes and he is saved. Likewise, our salvation is simply a matter of believing the gospel and not working to gain God's favor. Those of you who may not be born again, I, 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 I am not in any way trying to insult your intelligence but I do want to speak to you about the simplicity of the gospel. And that is, God says, you are bad. You, you, you are bad, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus is good. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And Jesus, the good one, went to the cross for us, the bad ones, and he paid for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And if you will simply believe in him, you will be saved. And you say, well, what, what more is there to it? That's it. That's all there is to it. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, that made sense to Abraham. The question is, does it make sense to you? Can we count you in? Is that enough for you? It needs to be enough for you because that's all there is. And if you add anything more to that, then you are defiling the gospel. And as I said earlier, it's not so much what God said that caused Abraham to believe. It's the fact that it was God who said it. You see, our problem, my problem with respect to faith is this. We evaluate what God says rather than starting with the fact that it is God who said it. And when we evaluate what God says, if it calculates and we are comfortable with it, if it matches up with our worldview and if it is convenient for us, then we will gladly believe it. However, if God says something that doesn't sit right with me, in my calculations, we choose to reject God's word and not believe. And you do know that every sin you commit originates with you believing something wrong about God. So let me illustrate it. God says, do not steal. And you say, I can buy that. That seems to make sense to me. I have a bright mind. I have a strong back. And, and so... I do believe that God will provide for me, and since I believe God will provide for me, and I don't want to go to jail, and I don't want to ruin my reputation, therefore, I see no need to, to steal. God, I believe you. When you say don't steal, I'm with you. Like, I'm with you right there. And God says, I want you to walk in purity. 
That is, I don't want you to fornicate. I, I, I don't want you to commit adultery. I don't want you to live in licentiousness. I don't want you to lust after a woman to desire her in your heart. I don't want you to look at pornography and you say, whoa, wait, whoa, wait, 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 wait. I'm not fully convinced, God, that you know what you're talking about. I mean, I, I, I understand, you know, that, that you created me and you created sex, but, but, I don't think that you fully understand my sexuality and how pleasure works for me and how my happiness will be maximized by expressing my sexuality as I wish. And so, so yes, when it comes to stealing, I believe you. But the whole sex thing, I don't think you know what you're talking about. Now, you wouldn't say it in so many words, but when you engage in adultery or fornication or licentiousness or pornography or lust, you are saying to God, you don't know what you're talking about. So then faith becomes not who we are trusting in, but it becomes a matter of doing what is right in my own eyes. If I agree with you, I will believe you. If I don't agree with you, then I won't believe with you. The faith of Abraham says, it doesn't matter what you say. You can say anything you want to. You are the God that I know, and the God that I know is able to raise the dead, and the God that I know is able to call things into existence which are not there. And so say whatever you want, God. I believe you. And when he believed God, it was counted unto him for righteousness. Nothing is too difficult for you, God. Say whatever you want. Abraham believed God. And verse 18, and did you hear me say those words, verse 18, it is your cue to look down at your Bible in verse 18. In verse 18, it tells us that Abraham's faith was accompanied by a hope, but not a conventional hope. Look at it. Please notice that it was not a hope which made sense, humanly speaking. Verse 18, in hope... He believed against hope. We will come back to that somewhat confusing phrase in a moment. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of, na of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Hope against hope means, humanly speaking, there is no hope. You want to talk about hope? Back in March, the New York Mets started their season with the highest payroll ever in the history of Major League Baseball. It is now September 17th. The Mets have 14 games to play, and they currently are trailing for the final wildcard spot by nine games. Do I hope that they will win out and claim a spot? I, I do hope that that will happen. Do I have hope? It's the Mets. If we had a 10-game lead with 11 games to play, I wouldn't have hope. I would be uneasy because they are the Mets. Abraham's hope was not based upon likelihood or probability. There was no hope, humanly speaking, that there was going to be a baby come out of the two of them. But his faith was so strong that it gave him hope, but it was not hope as we understand hope. It was hope against hope. 
And this paradoxical phrase, hope against hope, was explained by John Chrysostom in this way. John Chrysostom, who, 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 who died in the year AD 407, he said, it was against man's hope in hope which is of God. In other words, humanly speaking, man's hope, it wasn't there. However, there is a different kind of hope, and that is the hope which happens when God enters the room. Humanly speaking, it ain't happening. However, enter God into the equation and there is hope. And that is the hope which Abraham had and it enabled him to have faith. Uh, 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 to, to what extent? Well, verse 18 says, so shall your offspring be. What is that? Well, it is assumed that the reader will know where that phrase comes from, and it comes from Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. Remember when God stands Abraham outside at night and he tells him to start counting the stars? And as he's counting the stars, God says, Abraham, so shall your offspring be. In other words, you're going to have as many offspring as the stars in the sky. Abraham had hope that these offspring would come. Why? Because God said it and he knew God. Verse 19, which is your cue now to look down in your Bible at verse 19, tells us that Abraham was not an idiot, that he was realistic. He was not delusional. He was not living in a universe which he fabricated in his own mind. He did not need to be institutionalized. He, he, he was aware of his physical limitations and those of Sarah. He considered, he evaluated, he was aware of the biological limitations that he and his wife faced. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. So he did consider his own body. Did that weaken his faith? No. Well, what was the condition of his body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old? Or he didn't weaken in faith when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb who had already been barren. Let's consider old fathers for a moment. Did you know that Tony Randall became a father at the age of 78? You know what that is right there? That's an odd couple. That's an odd couple. Robert De Niro. He becomes a dad at the age of... Whoa, yikes. He becomes a dad at, at the age of 79. Doctor says, your wife's going to have a baby. And he said, what? He said, you're talking to me? Yeah, 79. Okay. This next one, James Doohan from Star Trek, Scotty, becomes a dad at age 80, and I will allow you to supply your own punchline for this one. <laughs> Thank you, Nicole. And Al Pacino. What's with these godfather people? Al Pacino... <laughs> becomes a father at the age of 83. I guess it's a Sicilian thing. 83 is as high as we get on this list. Now add 17 to that and you've got 100. 
And that's how old Abraham is. Abraham's aware of the problem, but his faith was stronger than his perception of reality. You talk to Abraham and, and, and he says, yeah, I'm going in the tent with Sarah. And I'll be honest with you, being alone with that woman in there, not too much going on. I mean, left to ourselves, we are not making a baby. I, I know that that is true. But I also know what is at play here is that I serve a God who raises the dead, the dead body of a 99-year-old, the dead body of a 90-year-old, and he calls things into existence which do not exist. And so even though I am aware of our deadness, I'm choosing to believe the promise of God. Well, how is that going to happen, Abraham? I don't know. I mean, I'm looking forward to finding out, but I don't know. And not only did he hope against hope, verse 18, not only did he not weaken in faith, but here's the crazy part in verse 20, and this is your cue to look down at verse 20. In verse 20, he actually increased in faith. Wow, his faith wasn't getting weaker as time went on. His faith was getting stronger. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong, grew. It got better. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Now, someone might argue and say, well, if you read the Genesis account, you will see that his faith did waver. Because in Genesis 17, 17, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? That is true. He did have a moment of weakness. Like all men, he had moments of weakness. But that weakness never overcame him because ultimately at the end of the day, he trusted in God. Douglas Moo puts his frailty or his weak moments of faith in this way. When Paul says that Abraham did not doubt because of unbelief, he means not that Abraham never had momentary hesitations, but that he avoided a deep-seated and permanent attitude of distrust and inconsistency in relation to God and his promises. Abraham maintained a single-minded trust in the fulfillment of God's promise, end quote. Do you ever have doubts? I do. Like all the time, I have doubts. Do those doubts that I ever have ever win me over into a state of unbelief and apostasy and denial of Christ? No, they do not. And nor did that happen to Abraham. Abraham's faith, in fact, was strengthened, and I think it can be argued that his faith was strengthened by the fact that the trial was more intense, but more on that later. Look at the end of verse 20, and you'll find something interesting which matches up with what we studied back in Romans chapter 1, and that is that as this was happening, he gave glory to God. Paul doesn't use this phrase accidentally. Back in chapter 1, Paul explains the process that leads one into a life of sexual perversion. You remember that? What they do, first of all, is they 
fail to acknowledge God as Creator, and then they are not thankful, and then they don't give glory to God, they, they don't honor Him as God, and then in fact they exchange God's glory for idols. That is the path to sexual perversion. Abraham was the exact opposite of that. In this process, he gave glory to God. Faith is the means by which we are kept from a life of perversion. And how do we bring God glory? Well, take verse 20 at the end into verse 21, which is now your cue to look down at those verses. At the end of verse 20, he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. The way that you bring glory to God is simply to believe that he will do what he says he will do. And I am firmly convinced that the more firm we are in our convictions about the promises of God, that He will do what He said He will do, the more glory God receives. And so you say, I want to glorify God. Therefore, if you want to glorify God, simply believe that He is telling the truth. Verse 22, which is your cue now to look down at verse 22, is the concluding verse for our sermon today. It's also the concluding verse in the illustration about Abraham. It is the back end of the inclusio or the bracket which began in chapter 4, verse 3. The quote from Genesis 15, 6, which is in 4, 3, and now it occurs again sort of as brackets to put this illustration all together. And the verse says that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Why? Because he believed. Bottom line, he believed and he got a righteousness out of it. Abraham was saved. He received a purchase, perfect righteousness simply by believing and God credited it to him. So put it all together. The end of chapter 3 Paul says, I've got some good news for you. Even though you're really bad and all have sinned and there is none righteous, you can be justified by God putting forth Jesus as a propitiation to die for our sins. And, 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 and since that is true, one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You want an illustration of that? Paul says, great, I'll give you an illustration. It is in the life of Abraham. He didn't do it by keeping the law. He didn't do it by being circumcised. He did it by believing the promises of God when it was, humanly speaking, impossible to believe. Six observations and we are done. Observation number one. Well, let me just give you the, the bottom line on observation number one. I, 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 I want you to consider going to be a missionary, but here's how I'm getting there. You strive by faith to glorify God, but, but, but let's, let me, let's make sure that what I'm saying is from the text. If salvation was by our own works, our own law keeping, our own ritual observances, then God would not get the glory. We would get the glory. But since salvation is by faith and God gets all of the glory for our salvation, does it not stand to reason then that we who have been saved by the grace of God through faith should strive to glorify God in our lives with our words, with our songs, with our uh, obedience, with our passions, with our repenting? And another way that we can glorify God is by thinking about the nations and the people who have never heard the gospel 
and leaving here and going there and becoming a missionary. Perhaps you can bring glory to God by becoming a missionary. Number two, there must be no ethnic divisions in the church. Where were you getting that? Well, I'm getting that from verse 16, which said that he is the father of us all, those who are adherent to the law and those who believe in the faith of our father Abraham. Whether there are Jews or Gentiles, it doesn't matter. Abraham is the father of all who believe, both Jews and Gentiles. And so I ask, does your life reflect, when I talk about your life, I mean your social life, does your social life reflect a preference towards certain ethnicities and the exclusion of others? You see, we are all the same family in Christ. And we are united by faith. And you say, Amen. Great. I'm glad you're saying Amen. I'm glad that you agree with me here. But I would ask you please to look at your life and to ask the question, is it in any way overbalanced with the presence of and preference for a certain kind of people? Or do you intentionally strive to love and include everyone? Faith says, We are all here by the same means, and we are all in the same family. Therefore, there should be no preference with respect to ethnicity. Number three, and very importantly, do not confuse the actual promises of God. And when I say the actual promises of God, I'm talking about what is in the Bible. All things are going to work together for the good of those that that love God, those who are the called according to His purpose. Like what is actually written in the Bible, that is an actual promise of God. Do not confuse the actual promises of God with the subjective feelings that you have interpreted as the voice of God. See, here are the promises of God. Now, you might be going through life and you get this impression in your mind. Where did it come from? I don't know. Here's one thing that you cannot do. When that impression comes in your mind, you cannot claim that as the promise of God. I'll hear people say things like this. My father is in the hospital. God has promised me that my dad will live, that he will get well, and that he will come home. No, he has not promised you that. You came up with that on your own. Your father, I hope it doesn't happen, but your father might die. You cannot take an impression which you received some way and just say, this is God speaking to me. One way that perhaps we need to be very careful, and I will be very gentle with this, but but it is in the area of fertility, because that's actually what this passage is talking about. There are couples that are not able to have a baby, and they will read the story of Abraham and Isaac, and they will say, God has promised us that we are going to have a baby No, he has not. He made that promise to Abraham and to Sarah. I hope that you have a baby, but you may not. God knows. But please know that God has not made that promise to you. And when you come up with something in your own mind, that is not God's promise. God's promises are in his word. What you subjectively feel as as you go through life well, I can tell you this for certain, that if it contradicts the Word of God, then it is not from God. And even if it doesn't contradict the Bible, it still might not be from God. We just need to stop this nonsense of, 
well, God told me this or God told me that. No, he didn't. God told you this. And these are the promises that you trust. Number four, closely related, you must believe the actual promises of God which are in the Bible, especially the promise which says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The gospel is of first importance. You are, you are unsaved today. You need to be saved. Here is the promise that you are to believe. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus died for the sins of his people. He was raised again on the third day. You are bad. You need him. You need salvation. Call upon Christ and believe that he loves you. You do remember that God loves you. Believe that God loves you and that he will save you. Believe all of the promises of the Bible. Number five, believe God even when it doesn't seem to make human sense. Remember, Abraham hoped against hope. His faith didn't waver and it grew strong. His faith grew strong. This especially applies, as I alluded to earlier, about the commandments of God. Every sin you commit starts with you not believing God. And when we think that we understand things better than God does, and remember what it says in Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man. I won't argue with you. I know that it does seem right to you. But faith says, I am not going to go based upon what feels to be the right thing to do. Back in 1999, JFK Jr. takes off in his plane and he's flying to their home up in New England. The weather is bad. The plane crashes. Later we are told, in part, the reason why the plane crashed is that JFK Jr. was trying to land the plane based upon what he could see and he was not a good enough pilot to trust what was on his monitor. Regardless of what it looks like out your window, you have to trust what is on the monitor. Regardless of what life looks like, you need to trust what is in the book. And even when it seems hard to believe, trust him. And the reason you trust him is because you know him. And the reason you know him is because you love him. And the reason you love him is because he first loved you. Therefore, you trust him regardless of how it feels. And finally, 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 I believe that the more difficult the trial is, the more our faith grows. God exits the children of Israel out of the land of, of Egypt. And what does he do immediately? He paints them into a corner. He takes them up to the Red Sea where there is no means of escape. Why did he do this? Because he was a poor navigator? No, he did it so that God's power could be displayed in the parting of the Red Sea and the people going through on dry ground. The harder the trial, the greater our faith will grow. So as you're going through life and there are going to be difficulties and there are going to be difficulties that are really going to challenge you, please know that the intensity of that trial will be proportionate to the opportunity, the great opportunity that you have for your faith to grow. Why didn't God just take a couple of teenagers or 21-year-olds and say, I'm going to start my family with this? 
starts with a 99-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman in order to demonstrate his power. And in our lives, trials will come where we will have to trust and things will seem bleak. What was more bleak than the second person of the Trinity hanging upon a cross? That was the most intense trial. Yet what did Jesus do? He entrusted himself to him who judges righteously and he believed that he would not leave his soul in Sheol, but that he would raise him from the dead. That was the bleakest of all bleakest trials, and it created faith for you and faith for me in the glorious resurrection of Christ. So, greater the trial, the greater the opportunity for your faith to grow. Well, 114 down, 319 to go, which means what? Oh, it means we're getting there. It means we're getting there. Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us faith. And now we pray, Lord, please increase our faith. Lord, help us to know you and to believe everything that you say, for you are trustworthy. You are powerful. You raise the dead. You call things into existence which don't exist. Lord, help us not to be the arbitrators of what we will believe and not believe, but help us, Lord, to trust you because you have said it. Thank you, Lord, for the glorious gospel. I pray that you'd use it to strengthen your people and to save your elect who do not know you yet. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.